Howdy and welcome to Wise About Texas, your Texas history podcast. This is your host, Ken Wise. Thank you very much for tuning in today for a little bit of Texas history. I'm recording this episode in June of 2020. We are in a very interesting time here in Texas and around the United States. In late 2019, scientists identified a new type of coronavirus originating in China. And by early 2020, it was on its way to pandemic status around the world, including the United States. And various state governments in the United States reacted in different ways. Some states tried to totally restrict their citizens' movements, the citizens' ability to work, ability to shop, all that kind of stuff, which generally did not go very well. Um, States with high-density living conditions got hit much worse for obvious reasons. And here in Texas, the governor declared a state of emergency and issued some executive orders designed to try and slow the spread of the virus to the extent possible, which of course, uh, it's not real possible, it's a virus, the virus is gonna spread, but we were trying to, here in Texas, limit a surge of hospitalizations that might overwhelm uh, the number of hospital beds that we had And uh, we did that, managed to do that. And currently, while this podcast episode is being recorded and released, we've opened the state back up now for almost a month. We're starting to strive, at least, to get back to a little bit of normal uh, as we learn to live with this coronavirus. Luckily, uh, the death rates from this virus are extraordinarily low, but uh, obviously you don't want to get sick. So all of uh, you good listeners of this podcast know that this episode was coming. We have to talk about pandemics and epidemics in Texas history. So let's go back as far back as the Spanish explorer Cabeza de Vaca and get wise about Texas. The first thing I want to do is talk about the word epidemic versus pandemic. Uh, The current coronavirus situation is being referred to as a pandemic, which technically refers to how a disease spreads geographically around the world, and an epidemic is more of a general active spread, an out-of-control active spread. Uh, For this episode, it really doesn't matter uh, what word we use, so um, probably end up using them interchangeably as I go through recording this, Uh, but there you go. We're going to start with, of course the Indians in Texas. Uh, Cabeza de Vaca, after a harrowing trip on rafts from Florida, landed somewhere on or near Galveston Island in the 1500s. And immediately, both his men and the Indians living there, we commonly think they were Caranquas, they might have been one of the other coastal tribes, but nevertheless, everybody gets a bout of what amounted to dysentery. Now, doctors have debated over the years what this might have been. It might have been some sort of infectious dysentery. It might have been um, cholera. It might have been typhoid fever. We will never know for sure. But they got uh, severe disease, and the Indians wanted to kill Cabeza de Vaca and the the men remaining that had not gotten sick. But one of the Indians, 
uh, pointed out that if these um, foreigners had actually brought bad magic to kill these Indians, then the foreigners wouldn't be dying themselves, which they were. Uh, interestingly, that, that Indian, whomever he was, was probably uh, the first successful criminal defense lawyer in Texas because Cabeza de Vaca was spared. The basic biology of infectious diseases from Europe is well known, and as exploration occurred in the New World, uh, the natives did not have the immunities that the Europeans did, and epidemics were rampant. Uh, the big one we talk about in general history is smallpox, and it truly decimated the Indian population over time and continued to do so into the 19th century. Well, doctors in Europe began experimenting with the vaccination process in the late 18th century, the 1700s. And when Spain learned of that, Spain ordered a vaccination program in New Spain. And some of the first vaccinations in Texas occurred as early as 1806 in San Antonio de Bejar. And we probably to talk about vaccinations. Let's talk a minute about doctors in Texas. Um, the first licensed medical doctor in San Felipe de Austin got his license in 1829. That was Robert Peebles. Uh, he had gone to medical school in Cincinnati, and he was uh, became the founder of the present town of Hempstead, Texas. There were seven doctors who signed physicians who signed the Texas Declaration of Independence. Uh, the provisional vice president of the Republic of Texas, Lorenzo de Zavala, among his many talents, he was also a doctor. And there were 11 doctors who fought in the Battle of San Jacinto. Uh, we, you'll recall, of course, that Sam Houston was wounded in the Battle of San Jacinto. Dr. Alexander Ewing was the physician that treated him and actually went with him to New Orleans to make sure that his treatment uh, ended successfully. Um, David Burnett, by the way, who uh, was the provisional president, hated Sam Houston. We've discussed that before, and um, he was very irritated that Ewing paid so much attention and, and was so uh, effective at his job. He actually uh, fired Ewing. From, Ewing was Surgeon General of the Texas Army. That's how he came to care for Sam Houston. So Burnett was so mad that he was caring for Sam Houston that he fired Ewing. Uh, and he fired him for leaving the state without permission when Ewing went with Houston to New Orleans. So there's there's a good story for you. Um, the, the last president of the Republic of Texas was a physician, Dr. Anson Jones. Um, in 1837, the next Surgeon General for the Army was uh, named Ashbel Smith. Now that name probably, if you've studied much Texas history, you're familiar with Dr. Ashbel Smith. And uh, he set up the first hospital in Houston, Texas. Of course, Houston's now renowned for its medical center. The first hospital was actually a military facility, and Ashbel Smith set that up. Um, the second Congress of the Republic meeting in 1837 set up what was called the Board of Medical Censors, censors with a C, and that was the licensing entity for physicians in the Republic. And the first chair was Dr. Ashbel Smith. Um, my own great-great-grandfather, who I've mentioned on this podcast before, James H. Price, was also a physician. His name is erroneously recorded uh, in the history, in the, the seminal medical history book by Pat Nixon as J. Hervey Price, and that's a long story, but it was James Howe Price. 
and he came to Houston as a physician and would have been licensed by that same board. He practiced in Houston, then Montgomery, Texas. All right. Well, we've got some doctors in here, and they're active. Uh, what do they have to do besides treat uh, battle wounds? Well, after the Revolution, there were several diseases that uh, made the, made themselves well-known in Texas. The big one, when you think about 1800s Texas, is yellow fever. Um, the first big epidemic of yellow fever that we discuss uh, in history usually is 1839. Now, the mortality rate of yellow fever back then could be as low as 10%, which is still very significant, a lot higher, of course, than what we're dealing with with this uh, 2020 pandemic, a lot higher. Um, but it could also kill up to 60%. So that was a, that's a huge mortality rate in the 19th century. And it was a very cruel killer. Um, it would, there are accounts of, of young health, otherwise healthy people dying within three days of yellow fever attacking. Um, and then often what would happen, this is almost crueler is after three days, the symptoms would subside briefly and people would start to feel better. Uh, but what that amounted to was kind of the eye of the hurricane because, um, the disease was still running its course in the body and they would uh, then get much, much worse and eventually pass away. There were terrible symptoms as, as uh, the disease attacked the liver. The, the patient would turn yellow with jaundice, of course, giving rise to the, to the disease being called yellow fever. And then there were some, uh, they also called the disease the black vomit. And I'll just leave that there, but that was descriptive. Um the patients would become uh, lapse into a coma eventually and pass away. Now, even the best medical minds in the 19th century thought yellow fever was contagious and that it came from miasmata, airborne particles which are generally associated with unsanitary conditions, maybe a trash dump or a pool, a contaminated pool of water or something like that. So what they would do is they would quarantine areas thinking that that would contain uh, the spread and they would dispose of bodies rather unceremoniously and quickly thinking that too would contain the spread. Um, now, yellow fever was known by 1839. Uh, they had experienced it. But in late September of that year is when this particular epidemic broke. And in Galveston was our firm, former Army Surgeon General Dr. Ashbell Smith. So what happened at first was a guy named Titchener passed away, and nobody really thought anything of it. He got sick and died, and, and not much attention was paid. But Ashbell Smith was then summoned to, of all places, a bowling alley. Now, I think uh, 1800s bowling alleys probably need their sep a separate episode, but there was a bowling alley across from Titchener's residence, and... So Smith was called for some cases of people getting sick in that bowling alley, and he checked them out and diagnosed them as having yellow fever. And within days, there were several cases and several deaths. And then it stopped. Now, why did it stop? Well, a cold front passed through Galveston. And uh, once that front passed, as happens in Texas in September and October of the year, it might get pretty chilly. 
but then the temperatures will go right back up and you'll think summer's back in full swing and the epidemic cranked back up right again. There were about 1,500 residents in Galveston in 1839. 250 of them would die of this yellow fever. Now, Ashbel Smith wrote down his observations and used this epidemic as an opportunity to do some serious study on yellow fever. What he decided was, and I'm just going to hit some highlights here, he decided that it was not contagious. He also wrote down that uh, he believed that the local causes, now he referred to that, you know, of course, specific to Galveston, and I'm going to quote him here. The local causes are, quote, the decomposition of abundant animal and vegetable matters going on under and around the houses on the strand and the exhalations from the extensive adjacent march and quagmire exposed to the ardent sun whose thermometrically range in the coolest shade for several hours daily has been from 81 to 89 degrees of Fahrenheit, close quote. So in other words, it's in the 80s in the shade, and he's blaming the fact that uh, animal, presumably carcasses and waste and vegetables are thrown away under and around the houses on the strand. Uh, there was also, of course, where he's referring to in the Strand in Galveston was the commercial center of the city. So if you went down to buy vegetables, buy groceries, buy meat, you went to that area. And then the, right behind it is the harbor where all of that would be unloaded. So there's naturally going to be um, trash and other sorts of uh, refuse around that area. The marsh, he, ta- he talks about extensive adjacent marsh and quagmire. And what he's talking about is the area to the east of what we now call downtown Galveston, which at that time was a very extensive marshy area. If you go back in the, go on the wiseabouttexas.com website and go listen to the episode about the time John J. Audubon visited Galveston, and I described that marshy area. It was also the city dump because it was largely useless. They dumped all the trash and everything out there. Well, if you think about it for a second, you figure out if you wanted to get bitten by a mosquito, that's exactly where you would go. And so that's the area that he was describing. And he thought that the disease, the responsibility for the disease came from the fact that it was the trash dump and there was trash and organic trash all over the area around the strands. He did not know how the disease was actually transmitted because remember, he thought it was not contagious, yet he blamed Uh, And what he meant was people to people, but he blamed those conditions. Um, He also notes, Dr. Smith noted, that the commerce between New Orleans and Galveston was very heavy. Well, of course, as the Republic of Texas established itself in Galveston as its largest and busiest port at this time, uh, the commerce between New Orleans and Galveston was extraordinarily heavy. And he noted the correlation between an outbreak of yellow fever in New Orleans, which had what happened all the time, and subsequent outbreaks in Galveston. And summer was the yellow fever season, and yellow fever visited Texas frequently. There were epidemics in 1853, 1854, 1858, 1864 was a big one, uh, 1867 was a big one. 
Um, in fact, in 1867, there were there were 10 to 12,000 cases of yellow fever in Galveston. We don't know the exact number, but there were only about 16,000 population in Galveston. So that was a huge outbreak. Uh, luckily, that's considered the last real epidemic of yellow fever in Galveston. And back then, there was not even quarantine was one of the things that they did uh, most frequently, and there was no controversy about that. Um, the, but quarantine back then meant nobody in or out of the city. So if you had, for example, uh, and I'll go more into this uh, in a few minutes, but if you had an outbreak in New Orleans, you might quarantine uh, New Orleans. In other words, no one allowed from New Orleans, no ships allowed to come in from New Orleans. Uh, during the Civil War, of course, the ports were blockaded. Galveston was blockaded, as was uh, the rest of the Confederacy. But wait a minute, I mentioned there was an epidemic in 1864 during the war. How could that be? So there was a dispute uh, whether yellow fever just popped up, as Ashbel Smith had pr- would have said in 1839, uh, or did blockade runners bring the virus in? They weren't sure. Uh, but Ashville Smith did write uh, in his treatise on yellow fever that quarantine was, in his view, the only way to prevent yellow fever. Let me say another word about quarantine right quick. I mentioned quarantine um, as in not letting anyone from an infected place into your place. But quarantine also meant separate people who got the disease from the rest of the population. So they would move them to an area where they couldn't infect others, even though Ash Bell Smith thought it was not contagious. Um, patrons of the show, I'll post Ash Bell Smith's findings uh, on the Patreon site, and you can read them because he describes how he determined it wasn't contagious, and that's uh, uh, pretty scientific and, and pretty gross, actually. But... Um, So Ashbell Smith believed that uh, just shutting down uh, trade with the city was the way to go. You know, in 2020, as this episode's being recorded, just for historical context, we had lockdown orders in Texas um, that varied from county to county as they should because the counties were different and the cases were concentrated some places and not others. But those orders were uh, essentially asking everyone to stay home unless you don't want to and that uh, we're going to close all businesses unless government officials call them essential, so not all businesses were closed. And uh, that was not how it was in the 1800s. They shut it down. All right, one more yellow fever uh, discussion here involves a very famous Texan, Margaret Lee Houston. Um, After Sam Houston died in 63, his widow Margaret Lee moved to Independence, Texas in Washington County, And in 1867, when yellow fever appeared, it began in Galveston. And by early September, uh, 725 people were dead. It had spread inland, and people were were leaving Independence by October of that year. Um, And what you would do is if you got—if yellow fever was present in the house, you would hang a white sheet in the window. That would show people uh, that somebody in the house had gotten yellow fever. And so this issue about whether it's contagious or not is still hanging out there, I guess. Otherwise, why would you do that? And um, they had shut Baylor College down. Baylor started in Independence, was located at Independence at this time, shut it down. And um, so Margaret Houston decided that this would be a good time to go visit 
some of her children, which she did, but on the way from one to another child's house, she stopped by Independence to her house to pick up some things, and she got bitten by a mosquito. Now, she wouldn't have thought anything about that at the time, but soon she got sick. And this was a second wave of the 67 epidemic, and um, this caused the people to flee Independence yeah, but unfortunately, it was too late for Margaret Houston. And on December 3rd, 1867, she died of yellow fever. The dispute about whether it was contagious reared its head immediately, and it was decided that they would not take Miss Houston's body to Huntsville to bury her by Sam. So they buried her in uh, Independence, right near the main intersection. And... Uh, even though Margaret was extremely religious, and you'll recall a story of Sam Houston's religious conversion, it was only after he married Margaret Lee Houston that he was baptized and gave up drinking. Uh, she was very religious, but the local Baptist preacher would not even agree to preside at her funeral for fear of the yellow fever. Um, so she was buried there in Independence, where she remains today. Um and just in case you think, I mean, Margaret Houston was a tough, tough lady. She had had breast cancer surgery about 20 years before she died, and she had it with no anesthetic. A lump was removed from her breast. Uh, the doctor, by the way, who performed that surgery, Ashbel Smith. Well, finally, eventually, uh, and due in large part to some research from uh, a Dr. W.C. Gorgas, who was stationed at Fort Brown in Brownsville, Texas, um, it was finally discovered that yellow fever was actually transmitted by mosquitoes. And so once that was discovered, the situation changed. And you can go back and read old histories of Houston, and you'll read about people, about um, what are called smudge pots or smudge fires being built in, at night uh, around the streets of downtown Houston to, so that the smoke would ward off the mosquitoes. And people understood how to deal with yellow fever. Well, another scourge... Uh, that reached pandemic or epidemic proportions in Texas history was cholera. Now, cholera is, con is caused by in contaminated water or contaminated food, and it's um, it, it, it doesn't kill like yellow fever, but it can kill you, uh, usually by dehydrating you. Um, there was an outbreak you know, of cholera in 1833 in New Orleans, and so everybody assumed that it would come to Texas. And so what they did now, this is, of course, 1833. This is pre-Revolution Texas. So all the soldiers' barracks were ordered in Behar were ordered cleaned. And um, the political chief in Behar, in conjunction with the military authorities, ordered this because soldiers were renowned for not being very clean. So you veterans listen to this podcast. I don't know what you think about that. But... Um, they also took some other, uh, what we would consider more modern steps. They divided the city into wards for public health purposes. They created a board of public health, and they put uh, different board members in different wards to be in charge of monitoring the health of those areas. And they also passed out what they called prescriptions to try to ward off and prevent cholera. One was a mixture of peyote, which is a hallucinogenic mushroom, and lime. Uh, along with laudanum, which is an opiate. Um, now, I will say this. In 1833, there was not a big outbreak of cholera in San Antonio, so I guess everyone wandering around hallucinating and high 
who uh, took that mixture uh, was, in fact, immune to cholera. I don't know. But, um, or cholera was scared of them, probably. Uh, there was an outbreak uh, near Brazoria um, at that time. Austin's colonists, of course, uh, centered around that area. Um, Austin, Stephen F. Austin actually got cholera in Mexico while he was down there um, trying to get the land grant confirmed after all the political upheaval in Mexico and then eventually, of course, ended up being put in prison. Uh, he survived cholera, and he wrote, he wrote in some of his letters back to Texas about it. He said at one time uh, in Mexico, 43,000 people had it, and 18,000 had died from it. He described uh, one victim that they wrapped in a blanket thinking he was dead, threw him into a mass grave, and uh, the guy woke up when he, <laughs> when he was thrown into the grave and ended up climbing out and walking home. So uh, people were obviously in a hurry to uh, not handle cholera victims very much and get rid of the bodies as fast as they could. Uh, the, the outbreak around the mouth of the Brazos River in the Brazoria area devastated Austin's colony. It also severely impacted the town of Alaska. It killed many of Austin's own relatives and many of the colonists. Uh, cholera came back again in 1834. There was a big outbreak in Goliad uh, about July. And... Um, the people of Goliad tried to, the alcalde was a guy named Jose Maria Falcon, and he issued some executive orders to prohibit the sales of fruits, um, and he provided a fine for that, so you would get fined if you sold fruit, which is, I find, interesting. Um, and, and the reason he did that was they thought that cholera was spread by the consumption of spoiled food, and they were probably partially right. This particular outbreak, there had been three ships that um, had wrecked on the coast near Aran basically Port Aransas today, and they sold a bunch of the merchandise from those ships in Goliad, and they thought that's how that cholera had, had come that time. Uh, so Falcone, the alcalde, said, all right, if, if anybody dies, we're going to get their bodies out of town as soon as possible, and that if somebody dies before you take them out of town, you got to close all your doors of your house so nobody sees these dead bodies. So what he was trying to do was manage the panic that he knew would come if people saw a bunch of houses with dead bodies in them. I thought that's interesting, somewhat relevant today. Uh, he ordered the church bells not to be tolled for the dead because then if they were tolling constantly, then people would be overwhelmed and think that the rate of death was a lot higher than he wanted them to think it was. Well, interesting, isn't it? Uh, in 2020, we've had some issues with modeling and, and fear, and uh, I thought it was funny how people maybe haven't changed all that much. Um, the, the original cemetery in Goliad at this time was actually moved because the wind would blow uh, from the cemetery over the village. And so they thought, well, we're not going to bury the bodies there. We're going to take them somewhere else. Um, they didn't allow the consumption of pork. Now, I don't know. I couldn't determine why specifically pork, because they did allow the consumption of beef. Uh, maybe it had something to do with they didn't want pigs in, in there. I don't know. Um, the fires I mentioned earlier, lighting in Houston, they ordered those. They ordered fires to be lit in uh, the streets 
and they ordered, Falcone ordered houses fumigated with gunpowder smoke. Now, I happen to like the smell of gunpowder smoke. I'm not sure, though, that I want to fumigate my house with it. Uh, certainly, uh, my wife would not agree. But anyway, Falcone thought that was a good idea. Um, and this is one that I found very interesting. He ordered that any water being consumed out of a cistern be filtered first, and the filter he ordered was burnt bread. Now, I'm going to guess that he thought that by burning bread, you created some sort of carbonization or something that would filter that water, which, of course, all you do when you burn bread is create burned bread. But anyway, that was Falcone's order, and uh, the cholera eventually resolved itself. No word of, or measured effects of the burnt bread. Well, one of the other diseases that uh, we got to mention before we close up is smallpox. Uh, one doctor called smallpox the most dreadful scourge of the human species. And um, it killed about a third of the people that got it. And uh, smallpox was around uh, into the 19th century. And there's one story I want to tell. Uh, it's a sad story, but I want to tell it because uh, I want everybody to think about it. In October of 1898, uh, there was a smallpox outbreak among children in Laredo, Texas. Now, the doctors initially thought it was chickenpox, and why wouldn't you? That's what you would assume, but they, they soon realized they were dealing with smallpox, and they had over 100 cases by early 1899. Um, the state health officer was a doctor named W.T. Blunt, so he travels to Laredo, and uh, he set up a field hospital to isolate the patients. Now, that makes, of course, good sense. You get people who have it out of town and away from other people. Uh, he ordered that all the clothing, bedding, et cetera, of these patients be, born, be burned. Excuse me. He ordered the fumigation of their houses. And he ordered something else. He ordered door-to-door -door vaccinations of the population. Everybody was ordered to be vaccinated against the smallpox. The problem he had was that Laredoans were not fully embracing the program. Not everybody wanted this mandatory shot. So Blunt asked the governor to send in the Texas Rangers, which he did. He sent uh, Ranger Captain J.H. Rogers in March of 1899 to enforce these health department orders. Well, the residents uh, who were against the vaccine did not like that, and they started to riot. They started to throw rocks at health workers. They started to throw rocks at rangers. Um, that is a mistake. Um, then the rangers got word that somebody made a phone call. And they made a phone call to a hardware store and ordered 2,000 rounds of ammunition. Now, technically, what they ordered varies depending on the accounts you read, but ordered a large quantity of ammunition. Well, the rangers knew exactly what that was going to lead to. So they began uh, a house-to-house -house search in the part of town where that order had come from. And, of course, the people in that area didn't appreciate that. And, again, it turned into a full-blown riot and shooting war. And uh, two citizens ended up dead and several wounded. Uh, the cavalry from a nearby fort, Fort McIntosh, rode in and restored order on that riot. Um, the inoculation program continued. Um, and the quarantine, the, the outbreak was over and quarantine lifted by May of 1899. But that was a 
a very sad situation. It's called the Laredo smallpox riot. And uh, it's, you know, a situation where people just, well, let's put it this way, public health situations don't always lead to uh, uniformity of belief among the population. All right, one last epidemic, uh, because it's been in the news a lot, uh, or at least early when people were trying to figure out how to respond to our current public health emergency. A lot of discussion was had about the Spanish flu. And in 1918, um, there was an army cook at Camp Funston, Kansas, and he came down with a flu virus. And, of course, being military, it was soon spread to the soldiers, and World War One was in full swing. Um, it was called the Spanish flu because there was an impression that it, that it began in Spain. But by October 1918, uh, we had a full-blown Spanish flu pandemic. Um, the health boards in Texas would had closed schools. They closed other public places. They quarantined uh, military installations, uh, the hospitals ended up short-staffed. Of course, they ended up full because uh, everybody got it. and um, Or not everybody got it, but every, you know, everybody was susceptible to it. Um, face mask orders were issued. Uh, quarantines were issued limiting travel between places. But nothing really ever stopped the flu until it had run its course, and it killed between 675,000 and 850,000 Americans, um, thousands of those in Texas, 20 to 40 million people died of this flu around the world. And, of course, it wasn't the flu that killed you. It was the secondary uh, stuff that these flu-type viruses aggravate, uh, pneumonia. A lot of people would get uh, sepsis. Uh, there weren't antibiotics at the time, and so uh, you were in deep trouble if that flu had caused that problem. Okay, I mentioned uh, one thing. I want to wrap up here, but one thing I mentioned was state health boards. There were some quarantine laws that Galveston actually passed in the 50s, so the, these official imprimaturs of health uh, making laws that dealt with public health started back then, and Galveston, of course, out of necessity because that was being a port city and being a tropical city was a place where they had to deal with this a lot. Uh, but quarantines also were used as weapons between towns. You could... <laughs> There's a lot of, in my reading, you see a lot of accounts of, uh, you know, Houston getting mad at Brenham, so quarantining Brenham, you know, or something like that. They, these towns would quarantine each other uh, as punishment for some perceived slight. But um, there were quarantine acts passed on the state level. Uh, there was an act in 1970 that allowed the governor to act in times of public health emergency. And, of course, those laws survive today. And, and if you're listening to this in 2020, uh, pay attention because you're experiencing the same discussions that were had throughout Texas history. Uh, one other thing I should mention um, that I found interesting was just the general hardship of the Texas climate. And this is just kind of a fact that didn't fit into any particular disease or, or story, but I want to mention it. You, after statehood, between statehood and the Civil War, and there was a study in the 70s, someone wrote an article in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly about this, but they examined how often soldiers got sick because between statehood and the Civil War, the U.S. built a couple of different lines of forts um, on the Texas frontier. And this study revealed that the average soldier stationed in Texas 
was sick between three and four times per year. Now, that's incredible. And that just shows that, uh, you know, uh, Texas is a tough place to live sometimes. And that's why, at least in my judgment and observation, Texans are tough. All right. Well, I want to wrap this episode up with some instructions that were given to the population during the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. These are some tips. Avoid chilling of the body or living in rooms of temperature below 65 or above 72. Well, I'm all for that. Avoid contact with other people so far as possible. Especially avoid crowds indoors, in streetcars, theaters, motion picture houses, and other places of public assemblage. Keep your hands clean and keep them out of your mouth. Eat plain, nourishing food and avoid alcoholic stimulants. I'm not sure we're going to agree with that one. Cover your nose with your handkerchiefs when you sneeze, your mouth when you cough, change handkerchiefs frequently, promptly disinfect soiled handkerchiefs by boiling or washing with soap and water. Sleep and work in clean, fresh air. Do not kiss anyone. Use individual basins and knives, forks, spoons, towels, handkerchiefs, soap, wash plates, and cups. And finally, it says, take care of yourself. Strictly observe the state and city rules and regulations for the control of influenza. So there you go. That was the advice in 1918. I hope everybody out there is staying safe and healthy during this 2020 situation. And I hope very soon that we will be able to listen to this episode and realize that it happened in the past. All right, I want to tell you a segment of the show I call Getting There, where I tell you where to see some of the places mentioned. Uh, This was a little bit scattered as far as locations, but I will say this. If you're down on Galveston Island, um, there was a quarantine station at what is now Seawolf Park, where the World War II ship and submarine are located. Uh, That was a quarantine station. The very first one for the Port of Galveston was at Fort Point, which is now on the current Coast Guard base, so you can't go see that. But uh, if you go to Seawolf Park, you are at the quarantine station. Now, of course, uh, when immigrants would come to Galveston, they would land there, and they would be examined so that we wouldn't bring any disease onto the island. There was a quarantine station also on Padre Island, just north of the old lighthouse uh, on Padre. Now, I'm not talking about the Port Isabel lighthouse. I'm talking about a lighthouse that was located on Padre Island, on the south end of the island. So uh, that's where the lighthouse was, and then just north of there was a quarantine station. I honestly don't know what is there at the moment, but I will be down there. I'm recording this, as I mentioned, in June. I'll be down there later this month, and I will check it out and let you know. Um, If you want to just stick to the museums, there's a health museum in Houston, which is very interesting. Uh, There's also a museum at UTMB in Galveston, but I cannot, as I'm recording this, tell you if it is open or not. So check with the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston to see if their museum has reopened. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Wise About Texas. Again, stay safe and healthy. Use your good judgment and follow those 1918 rules. They still apply today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wise About Texas. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.